Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. It's an honor to get to speak with you this morning. We're in a series called The Lost Arts. And um, so I'm going to lead us through what we're calling the lost art of worship, and the thing, the the idea of the lost arts is that there's these things that were intended to be the fixtures of the Christian faith, experiences that were intended to be normal and present in the everyday life of people who follow Jesus. But there seems to be kind of some important things that look like they've gone missing, or they've been compromised, or they're not working the way that they used to be working. And by talking about them, we're wanting to recover those things into the existence of our church body here. Of Renaissance. And so today we're talking about the lost art of worship because true worship is something that seems to be lost in a lot of places and it's definitely something that we want to recover. And so I just want to lead us through some ideas about worship. And the thing about worship is that if we talked about it for like 20 hours, we would just be scratching the surface of what worship actually is. It's probably going to be a little shy of 20 hours this morning, so don't worry. Um, I think I can do it in 12. But no, I'm kidding. Like, we're going to get, it's going to be okay. So here's the thing about worship. I want to talk, talk first of all about the start of worship because the idea of worship has been around since the beginning. From the beginning in the Old Testament, God created the heavens and the earth and he created man in his image in this perfect unity and relationship with him. And the Bible's very clear that all creation is currently worshiping the Lord, the trees raising its branches, the, the mountains singing, um, all created things were created for this reality to worship. And the word for worship, there's only a few different words in the Old Testament that are used for worship. I'm not gonna embarrass myself or you trying to translate Hebrew, but what I will tell you is they all basically boil down to this one idea, this one kind of definition. To worship means to bow down with a sense of reverence, respect, and honor, just like Chris read from Psalm 95. This is the, the start of worship in the Old Testament. And by the way, in the Old Testament, it's mentioned, this word for worship is listed 171 times. So worship is a very key feature of the, in the Old Testament for the followers of God. When he called Abraham, he called him into a reality where Abraham, Abraham was the first one to actually use the word when he was talking about Isaac. And he said, I'm going to take Isaac over here and we're going to worship. That was a pretty intense time of worship, if you're familiar with that story. But you want to talk about a faith and a trust and a bowing down and, and, and just knowing that God was going to meet you somewhere. Abraham laid down his pride. He laid down his son and trusted God with this act of worship. But worship was important. And then as God was leading his people through this nomadic reality, when something good would happen, when a battle was won or when a provision was made, it was very common for the people to build an altar and they would make a place, a place of worship to bring sacrifices to God in order to honor him and to think well of him and to celebrate what God has done. And they made these places of worship in the desert. And so what would happen is that from place to place, they would go and there was all of these 
these places of worship. And a lot of times God's provision happened on mountains. And so mountains became places associated with the worship of God. And if you think about it, it makes some sense, right? Because mountains are elevated. God is elevated. And so the people were associating as high as they could get with getting close to God. And so they were making these places of worship. The only thing about that was is that God was never really purposeful about telling anybody to worship on the mountain. God's worship, God's idea for worship always seemed to be for it to happen closer to where the people were. So when they were creating tents, the place of worship was in the middle of the camp. And and when they created the temple, it was in the middle of the city. And so God's heart for his people is to be in the middle of where they are. And so as, as the the movement continues and we move from Old Testament to New Testament. Our New Testament is broken down into several different categories. We have the Gospels, which is the uh, accounts of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the Acts of the Apostles, which is the early followers of Jesus after he ascended. And it's the birth of the early church. And so how we practice church comes starting there, modeling after the Acts of the Apostles. And then you have the epistles, the letters that Paul had written and other people have written instructions to the church encouragement to the church, correction to the church. And so actually the details of how we worship are what we've learned mostly from the epistles. And then you have Revelation that stands alone as the apocalyptic return of Jesus. So those are the kind of four categories of the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's only 26 times that that same kind of word for worship is used that they used in the Old Testament. And most of those times, 25 of those are in the Gospels when people were having face-to-face encounters with Jesus and his teaching, and they came to him and they bowed down with their lives to leave everything in order to be able to follow him. There's only one time in the book of 1 Corinthians that this idea of worship is spoken of again in all of the um, epistles Revelation's kind of whole next level worship, right? Um, But it changes from uh, this understanding of what worship was in the Old Testament to like, why would it change all of the sudden in the New Testament? And here's my simple answer to that, because Jesus changes everything, including our understanding of worship. So a lot of the words that we use, the heart of it, the start of it, came from the Old Testament, and it's pointing towards Jesus. And I want to talk just a minute before we get into more of that and and talk about bowing down, like this humility, um, this prostrating ourself, right? Bowing down means that I'm willing to concede that something is greater than I am. I am willing to say that I'm not that much and I'll, so much so, I'm happy to get down here because this is where I belong because God and God alone deserves to be lifted up. So when we bow, worship is not about our preferences. Worship is not about the songs that we re- would rather be singing. It's not about condemning any other practices of worship. It's not about entitlement. The start of worship starts here on our knees. And if we're not able to lower ourselves here and go, this is where I I belong. We have one good, good father who's perfect in all of his ways and the rest of us are not. And we belong here, we belong bowing down. 
But the thing that I see is that I see a lot of people bowing down, but I'm not sure the things that we're bowing down to are saying that, you know what, God is the biggest and most important thing to be worshiped in this world. I feel like we're bowing down to political ideologies. I, I believe we're bowing down to entertainers and spending tons of money and, and storming gates and pouring out all of this emotion on these people, and we're saying they're worth giving all of our efforts to. When you look at um, every weekend, and, and this isn't condemnation, I'm just saying like worship is present in a lot of different places. Like all of these football stadiums are having to expand to accommodate 100,000 people, 120,000 people, and people are spending their whole weekends driving, spending hundreds if not thousands of dollars so that they can spend an entire day pre-gaming and post-gaming and, and, and focusing and lifting up the favorite sports team. We wear their colors, we wear their stickers, we put it on our, our cars, we wear the t-shirts of the entertainers. We are constantly participating in the lifting up of many, many things. The other thing that we can lift up is ourselves, our expectations, the way that we feel like things should go, our opinions, how we think the world should be. What are we lifting up? What is our world lifting up? On any given weekend, thousands of people are going to these stadiums packed full. And when I look at them, I see them doing things, right? They're standing, they're shouting, they're clapping, they're singing. They've got these worship songs pledging their allegiance to a school. The devotion is there, the expression is there, and if things start going badly, there's a lot of prayer. People are praying, grown men are crying out because this is so important, lamenting, complaining. All of these emotions God gave to us for worship. Those are all things that we see all throughout the psalm. So it's like those emotions God put in us, why do we spend so much time expressing the things that God's given us in lifting up things that aren't him? What are our lives lifting up? If people were looking at our lives, what would they say matters the most? Because that's the start of worship. I've led worship in a lot of churches in a lot of different times. I've preached in a lot of churches, been in a lot of places. And it's like, I don't usually see that level of emotion when the gathered people of God come into the house of God, into the presence of God. It's like pulling teeth to try to get somebody to, to act like they want to be there. Why? Why do we save our best emotions for things that aren't God? Why do we save them for relationships? Why do we save them for hobbies? Why do we save them for sports teams that are just making money off of all of our emotion? Why are we giving it there? And I'm not saying we, it's wrong to, to appreciate and celebrate all these things, but shouldn't God get equal or greater lifting up at least? Shouldn't there be a tie? Shouldn't there be a love God and love your neighborhood sports team and entertainer, like, what, is there, why doesn't it look to be closer? Why are we not having to expand places of worship to fit 100,000 people? Why don't we have standing room only? Why? All over the world, stadiums are getting bigger. Tickets are getting more expensive. People are spending more of their time and resources on things, not God. We are worshipers. 
We are worshiping every day. We're bowing down, lifting something up. I just want us to be a people who are devoted to lifting God up higher than anything else that we're lifting up. You love CrossFit, you love Camp Gladiator, you love the keto diet, you love your politicians, you love your musical artists. Do you love Jesus more? Does our reputation, does our presence, does our life say that that is a higher reality in our life than any other thing? That's the start of worship. The heart of worship is this. And a defin- another definition of worship is, um, is this, it's worth-ship. Why? Why should we come into a place and bow ourselves down and give God the best of who, who we are? Because he is worth it. Worship is worth-ship. We give ourselves to him because of his great worth. So when we're not doing that, I think we're forgetting the intensity and the weight of who God is and what he has done. And I wanna just give us a little bit of a reminder here, maybe a big reminder, and that's this. God is big. He's big. Did you forget? He's not absent in the last two years. He's not confused by the difficulties and the strongholds and the pains and the frustrations. He's not caught off guard by any of those things. He's in the same place that he's always been. He's on his throne, working all things together for good in ways that are higher than ours, ways that we can't understand. And he's doing what he always does. And that's exactly where we want him to be. And I got myself kind of on a rabbit trail. And if you know me, like... That's amazing. Like rabbit trails, my rabbit trails have rabbit trails that have rabbit trails. It's amazing that I stay in a straight line. I don't ever stay in a straight line, but it's amazing that I can ever get back to wherever this line was going. So I kind of got on this tangent and I, I started finding these images because we have this thing called the Hubble Space Telescope that has this amazing camera and all it's doing is circling out into space and capturing the vastness of the universe. And so I just wanna show, I, you know, I just wanna share a little bit of uh, my new found obsession and hopefully you can see it okay. That was almost it. unedited. Nothing's been done to these.
it just like, I just was looking at them one after the other. This is from, a, there's like a thing called the Hubble Advent. It has no Bible verses, no anything like that. It's just like an Advent calendar of these images. And I'm looking through there just one after the other. And I'm thinking about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And those pictures, like, you know where our, God, like, our solar system, you can't even see it in any one of those pictures because our entire solar system is so small in the vastness of everything that God's created that you would look at that picture and some an observer would say, there's nothing there, let alone um, a planet, let alone a country, let alone a subdivision, let alone a house, let alone a, perpen, a person. Where do we show up in the vastness of this? I think we forget sometimes just surely how big God is because if we would remember that we exist in the vastness of this, then there would be no interruption in our worship. If we were always remembering the amazing nature of God, we would be bowed down to lift him up with a lot more fervency and consistency. If we were to take, we, if we were to count all of the stars in the the Milky Way galaxy, right? If we were to count all of the stars one per second, we would start a project that would take us 2,500 years. 2,500 years is a lot. We would be here for a minute just trying to count the stars. The Bible says that God knows the names of each and every one of them. What would take us 20, that's just one, one of these little galaxies. Our solar system our solar system in the context of our galaxy is like the size of a quarter, like that's not very big, put up against the size of North America. North America's very big, a quarter is very small. You can't see it. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of participation in this idea that, you know what, in the scheme of things, my little life is a blip. My 70 or 80 years is a gift in eternity that will never be understood in the vastness of eternity except for that where I participate with God because in my own, I'm bowed down and I'm nothing. And with God, he is everything and I'm tapping into that. Psalm eight says, Lord, our Lord, how, magn how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. You have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the world work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. This was before they had a Hubble telescope, by the way, like David just looking up into the sky and drawing these conclusions. Now think about the vastness of what we just saw, which you set in place. What is a human that you remember him, a son of man that you look after me? The fact that God loves us and invites us is a reason to worship. Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Let me tell you something about the bigness of our God is that early on, God created man in his image to be in perfect relationship and harmony with him, but man wanted to be like God. We wanted to raise ourselves up. We weren't content being low and making God high. The fruit unlocked the knowledge that made man on the level of God because that's what man wanted to be. And not much has changed. 
We enjoy being God. We enjoy thinking what everybody else should do. We enjoy being glorified ourselves. We enjoy getting all the things that we deserve. There's still a very real temptation for us to want to elevate ourselves to God-like status. But man, sinned against God and sin can't stand in the presence of God, so God removed that from his presence. Sin separates us from God, it still does. Less than God's good, pleasing, and perfect will removes us from the presence of God, and we are separated from him for all of eternity, but God wasn't content to let us stay off to the side out of his presence, which he would have been perfectly just in doing so. God wasn't lonely. He, didn't, he, he had every right to say, hey, that sin where you're arrogant, you wanna be like me, I'm done with that, separated forever. And he would have been just fine because he's big. He's got other things going on. But instead, the Bible says that at, at just the right time, God sent his son. Now there's this whole history between the sin of man and Jesus coming, of God pointing to the reality of the coming Messiah, of inviting his people into obedience and trusting him. There's this reality that God wasn't content to let his people stay in death and and separation. We, you and I, are born into a sinful DNA. We have our spiritual forefathers, Adam and Eve, to thank for that. Because of their sin, every person has been born into sin. And before we start playing the victim, and like, well, that's not fair. It's like nobody had to teach you how to lie. Nobody had to teach you to be prideful. Nobody had to teach you to look out for yourself first. We all have sin that is just, we, we were born into it. We have it by DNA, but we also have it by choice. So we're accountable for the sin that we participate in and we were born into. We chose that and in so doing, we chose separation from God. But instead of leaving us separated there, which he had every right to do, God sent a part of himself, his son, to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that our sins deserve. Romans says that the consequence of the sin, the only thing that can make right the depths of our sin is a perfect sacrifice. So a a perfect life has to be laid down in order to make the payment for the sin that our lives deserve. We can't pay that because we're not perfect, only the good, good father is perfect. So he sent his perfect son to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that our sins deserved on the cross. That's what the cross was all about, taking the punishment for our sins and offering in exchange for that. He didn't go, here's your bill. Try to get that paid if you can. He said, it's a free gift. I've got you. Believe in me. Have forgiveness. Have eternal life. Trust me. I've got you. It's too good to be true, but it's true. Come and believe in me. Come and trust in me. Come be separated no longer. I've done everything that you couldn't do. I've got it all taken care of. Our sins are forgiven, our debt is paid, and we're reconciled back to God and invited to live with him for all of eternity. And Jesus who died for our sins, on top of that, he didn't stay dead. So when we gather to worship, we are focusing on the living son of God who paid everything for us, who invited us into forgiveness and redemption and eternity and saying, approach my throne of grace with confidence. I want you here. 
I want you close. My presence has everything that you need. I'm better than anything that you could ever imagine. Just come on, let's go, let's go. That's why we worship because Jesus is the center of our worship and he's at the center of worship for every believing Christian all over the world. And Chris already read from Psalm 95 that says, so hey guys, because of all that, God is big. He created all this stuff. Things went terribly wrong. God loved us so much. He wasn't gonna leave us in that mess, just doomed to burning up with the rest of a solar system that's gonna burn up eventually. He says, hey, I want you with me. I made a way for you to come with me. I'm inviting you to believe in me. And now the opportunity is to worship me because I'm worth it. That's the heart of worship. And I just wonder like, do we forget the intensity? Do we forget the price that was paid on the cross for the redemption of our souls and the forgiveness of our sins? The Lord is a great God from Psalm 95, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his and the sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. So come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. Come on, let's bow down. He's worth it. He's worth it. Far more worth it than any other thing. That's the heart of worship. Jesus at the center. God's plan for humanity to spend forever with him and to have everything that we need. Now I wanna shift gears a little bit. So the start of worship, the heart of worship, they don't rhyme with each other after this. I'm sorry, I just couldn't make it happen. Next is the way of worship. These are some of the elements of worship. So it's true in every situation, Jesus changes everything. So they used to have to make these sacrifices for the atonement of their sin, but Jesus came, paid the ultimate sacrifice, so we didn't have to make that sacrifice anymore. So worship shifted gears a little bit and began to include different words and different reality. And the most foundational verse we have for this is in John chapter four. Jesus said, um, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but an hour is coming and now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus just changed the game in a very subtle way because what was worship about before? The mountains and these locations and these places. And Jesus goes, no, 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 it's not about this place or that place. So Jesus also just came and said, hey, there's no holy places anymore. The only holy place is wherever two or more of my people are gathered and I am there with them. So guys, we're worshiping in a school, <laughs> worshiping in a lunchroom, cafeteria, gymnasium, cafe gymnatorium, which is fun to say. And the presence of God is here and it's as holy as the temple was in the Old Testament. Jesus changed the rules. Jesus changed the game. And this is how we experience worship now. So I wanna talk about a couple different ways that we worship real fast. So we worship gathered. We have gathered worship. That's all of us in a large group. So we worship the where is large groups and small groups, right? So we worship together on Sundays. We worshiped Friday night with uh, Waypoint and the Grove. It was incredible. That was a kind of a large group. And then we meet in house churches, that's small group. And then from house churches, people have coffee and lunch or just hang out, like that's small group. Those are all places of worship. And we're instructed from that um, in Acts 2, 46. It says they gathered together at the temple, but also broke bread in their homes. And then Jesus said, 
said, but the quota, the quorum for worship is wherever two or more are gathered. My presence is there with them. And so the first question of gathered worship, where is large groups, small groups, wherever you can worship. The next thing is when. And here's the rules about when. Hebrews 10 just says, hey, let us consider one another in order to, let's consider how to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. How much should you gather? As much as you want, as much as you need. Frequently though, don't neglect meeting together. Don't let other things get in the way. Don't let life interrupt the frequency of how often you can meet together because it gives the enemy a foothold and room to occupy that space and bring divisions into large groups or small groups. Frequently is the invitation. Well, how, what should we do? What makes worship worship today? Well, there's a bunch of things that we do and we see where these come from in the New Testament. So how, how do we worship? We worship like this. Uh, we have preaching and hearing the word of God. First Timothy says, don't neglect the public reading of scripture when you come together. It's of the utmost importance because nobody comes to Jesus without hearing about Jesus and being invited to believe him. It also says that we sing songs of praise and adoration, that we admonish each other, that we encourage each other. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. So singing isn't like warming up for the message. Singing is attracting the presence of God and preparing our hearts. And the Bible says that we unlock faith when we participate and we have these words coming out of our mouth that we maybe wouldn't otherwise say except for we're together and there's power when we say it all together and we feel things that we don't feel like when we're in the car singing and by ourselves. Like there's something good happening by being together and singing. Jesus in Mark 11, and said, my house is gonna be a house of prayer. So when we pray together in worship, we're doing exactly what Jesus asked us to do. Another part of worship is giving. Um, it's uh, taking communion, the ordinances of communion and baptism. We see that in 2 Corinthians 9 and, and 1 Corinthians 11. All of that, it's not a separate thing. Like our offerings, that's not like a after the worship. That's a part of worship. It's an overflow. It's part of giving ourselves to God and trusting him with that which he has entrusted to us. We're going to take communion here just in a few minutes. It's part of what was instructed to us. When you do this, remember me through the Lord's Supper. Um, we do baptism from time to time. As soon as there's somebody ready, we'll have an opportunity to celebrate baptism and worship. Sometimes we have testimony. Sometimes we have expressions of spiritual gifts. In other words, worship is not just about a few people on a stage. Worship is about the church body exercising the gifts that God has given them for the edification of each other. So we have opportunities to serve and you're loving children and you're serving in the community and you're helping us with the things that we need help with, the church needs help with, because that's part of worship. It's not just singing and and preaching. It's all of these things. It's an important part of worship. Celebrating and enjoying God's presence in Acts. You know, they were all together and they were praying and the Spirit of God just came, boom, and all of a sudden there was you know, thousands of people started coming to Jesus simply because the presence of God was attracted there and God chose to pour out his spirit and his presence there and things started happening. And then after that, miracle signs and wonders started happening. So when we gather, our expectations should also include strongholds are gonna break. Frustrations are gonna be mended. Personality challenges are gonna be healed. Sicknesses are gonna be healed. Faith is gonna be restored. Those are miracles, signs, and wonders. We don't get to write the script. The presence of God does that. And we trust him for when we come together. So that's kind of how we worship. Why? 
Well, we already talked a little bit because God's worth it, if nothing else. He's worth it. And we only do this like an hour and a half once a week. And he's worth it. He's worth so much more. But worship equips, encourages, and empowers us for the life that we are called to do. One of the first definitions of worship that I learned was from Louis Giglio, and he said it like this. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what, he's, what he has done, expressed in and by the words we say and the way we live. The next opportunity we have, it's not just gathered worship, but it's lifestyle worship. Worship isn't just this hour and a half. Worship is all day, every day. And we get this from Romans 12 that says it like this, therefore, by the way, that therefore, like that's not the beginning, like therefore is therefore a reason, right? Anybody remember like Magic School Bus, Conjunction Junction, like therefore is there for a reason. This is why it's there. There's Romans one through 11. <laughs> Some of the most robust, significant doctrinal teaching about Jesus and the church that exists in the scriptures. So I would just encourage you, like if your appetite is whetted at all, like go hang out in Romans one through 11. There's even like this YouTube Bible recap people. It's like, if you can't commit to reading all that, they do an amazing summary. But here's, here's what basically Romans one through 11 says. God is God and we are not, right? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living is your life, your every day. Do not be conformed to this age. So what's in the way? of lifestyle worship, the wisdom of our culture is a hindrance to living a lifestyle of worship. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Worshiping with our lives. Because our belief in Jesus and the worthiness of God believe that being a Christian is not just a list of things that we do because we have to. It's because God is worthy of our devotion and our bowing down and lifting him up with every part of our life, every single day, every place that we go is an opportunity to glorify him. And we're to be filled, filling our minds with the word of God to renew our minds. It's part of what we're doing here, why we teach and why we help each other understand because we need this fuel to be able to deploy ourselves into the world. So let me hit a couple things and we'll be done. The next thing is I wanna talk about the weapon of worship. And what I mean here is 2 Corinthians 10 just says, for although we live in flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. How do we fight our battles? Not like the world does. We don't trust arguments, we don't trust wisdom, we don't trust um, clever schemes, we don't wage war like the world does. Why? Because God has already fought every battle that needs fighting. He stands at the end of it, he's already won. It's already been done. We don't have to worry. It's not our battle to fight. And I thought about these examples. Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. This was God's military strategy for Jericho. Prayer walk for seven days. Lolly, prayer walk for seven days. 
and bring the trumpets on the last day. And you've got it. What kind of military strategy is that? A terrible one. Except God is big. And he gave a word that says, this is what I want you to do and you can trust him. And when he says, this is how you fight your battles, you fight them like that. March for seven days, blow the trumpets, watch the walls fall down. And they did. Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel and a fortune teller got put out of business and lost all of her income because she was exposed to being a fraud. So she got mad, took Paul and Silas to court. They were accused for this. They were wrongly imprisoned. They were beaten illegally and they were put in prison wrongfully while they were there. We don't have testimony of them whining and complaining. We have testimony of them singing, worshiping, giving God his due in the place where God had allowed them to go. And what happened? The earthquake comes and all the things, the chains fall off and the doors are open and the prison guard, the prison guard comes to Jesus. The prison guard takes them to his family. Their family comes to Jesus. What was, what would, what an outrage. They don't belong there. Somebody's got to do something, except they were trusting God to fight their battles. So even in prison, they lifted their voices in praise and saw the battles being won. Revelation, this is a terrible picture, by the way. Like, we need some better art of the second coming of Jesus in the universe. So if we have any artists out there with like a little flair and a little edge, like the world needs something to more, a little more accurately portray the returning of Jesus. Like this guy's a little too pretty, I think. I don't know. But, um, but here's the thing. Jesus is returning to make everything right. He's already fought all of these battles. No more sickness, no more pain, no more anything, no more worries. Everything's right in his presence. And so what I love about this is like, you've got, this actually says his robes dripped in blood and he's got King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his thigh. I think he's a little cooler looking than this guy. But he's coming in strength and power with his white beard and like uh, lasers in his eyes, swords out of his mouth. Like it's intense. Like this is warrior Jesus that does, he's got a sword, like that's a good start, right? But this is mighty warrior Jesus who fights all of our battles, is standing ready when the time is right to come and just remind us that it's already all been made right. We're just waiting for the culmination of that. And we got all these like people in the back, like what are they going to do? Yay, Jesus. That's their job. You know what our job is? The exact same. To line up behind Jesus, to let him fight our battle. That's when we sing, raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. Why? Because the worship of the Lord is the most powerful thing on the planet. It's not nothing, it's not soft, it's not a waste of time, it's the only thing that matters. That's how we fight it. Whatever your battle, however big or small, whatever it is, it's not yours to fight. It's not. If you fight it, you're raising yourself, you're bowing Jesus down and raising up yourself. It's his battle. We bow ourselves down, we raise him up, we line up in our pretty white robe and we just watch what Jesus is gonna do. We trust him with everything we've got. The weapon of worship is significant. And the last thing I wanna say is that the world will worship. The last thing 
I love the, the way that, I know John Piper's gotten some heat lately, but I love the way he talks about worship and missions. And he says it like this. He says, seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you, can't, what you don't cherish and you can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the, goal, the future, I mean the fuel and the goal of missions. You can just leave that up there for a second, Lance. And the other thing that he says is that, that missions exist because worship doesn't. There are places in the world that have not yet heard about the name of Jesus. But Philippians 2 says, at the name of one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and lift high the name of Jesus that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This means that worship is literally a matter of life and death. The people that don't learn to worship will spend eternity separated from Jesus. Our worship here is a matter of life or death because if this isn't mobilizing us, fueling us to mobilize, to see other people worship that have never tasted worship, then we're elevating ourselves and we're just here for how it makes us feel. Because worship is mobilization. Worship is the fuel of missions. It's the goal of missions. Because when we see God high and lifted up, we're reminded of his goodness and his bigness and his vastness and his amazing nature and all the amazing things that he's been for you and I. And we cherish it and we prize it. And when we do those things, we know there's other people that need what we have. And then we live, bow ourselves down. Our life is not our own. Our life is an opportunity to spread the goodness and greatness of the God who is worthy of all of our worship. So we talked about the start of worship, the heart of worship, the ways we worship. Worship is a weapon. It's our only weapon. The armor of God isn't real armor, by the way. Like it's all spiritual realities expressed and experienced in the context of worship. And then the world will worship. This art seems to be lost. It seems to have been reduced to just like some songs, some teaching for an hour and two a week, but it's the calling that God has on our life. I'll leave you with this from a, a bishop named William Temple. I added a little bit. <laughs> it's only right, right? I don't know. Elevated myself. I'm a hypocrite. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness. It is the nourishment of mind with his truth. It's the attracting of his presence through our praise and adoration. It's the purifying of our imagination by his beauty. It's the opening of the heart to his love. And it's the surrender of will to his purpose. And I would just invite you, which one of those things is your invitation this morning? Where do you sense God calling you deeper into worship? not in judgment and condemnation, but in love and joy and peace 
and fullness and faith. What's your opportunity? Is the issue submission of ourselves, bowing down, quickening our conscience, remembering his holiness and syncing up with that? How are we doing with nourishing our mind, renewing our mind with the word? When was the last time you filled your mind with the truth of the word in a way that it armed you to trust God more, not just check a list? When was the last time you gathered in worship because you want the presence of God more than you want anything else in your life? What about purifying your imagination? What about our thoughts? What about the purity of your thoughts? Where are they taking you? Where are they leading you? And the opening of your heart to his love. Maybe you think God doesn't love you and I wanna tell you that he does. And that invitation, that invitation to trust him and believe him and receive that forgiveness for all of your sin, it's fair game this morning. And surrendering your will to his purpose, bowing down, lifting him up, and following him. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.